Well, hello, folks, and thanks for listening to Saul Searching, the Better Call Saul Outsider podcast, where my friend Chris and I talk about Better Call Saul, the spinoff from Breaking Bad that's currently airing its second season on AMC. I'm John. Hello, Chris. Hey, uh, uh, John, I'm, I'm Chris. See, I tried to take the pressure off of you this time. I, tried, I said my name. So I know, but it made to... me have to scramble for like, okay, now what do I say? You were all ready to say, hey, John? Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I've got my line. Hey, John. When he says, hey, Chris, I'm coming out of the gate with, hey, John. Yep. And, uh, and then it'll be smooth sailing from there. Yeah. Oh, well, it, it, this works, too. So, episode two of season two of Better Call Saul, which was called Cobbler. This one was a particularly funny one in terms of wondering why it might be called Cobbler the whole time. And then finding out in a decisive fashion at the end. Yes, very clearly. I didn't know uh, what it was going to be. I thought maybe it's Peach Gobbler, but maybe it's about a, a shoemaker and some elves. But uh, it was a fantastically gratifying story. We're talking about a scene from the end of the episode where Jimmy sort of, I guess we can say, resolves the, the, the last dangling thread of the situation with Price, which is getting the cops off of his back. Um, and and the way he does it is a great moment, a great scene. He's a squat cobbler. Yeah, a Hoboken squat cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> right, he had all these different names for it. Technically, he does a crybaby squat. I mean, we may as well go ahead and say it then if we're talking about crybaby squats. My favorite line of the season and maybe the show is uh, <laughs> not all pie sitters cry. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I liked that because it reminded me of the, um, was it a Chicago sunroof right. last year? right. And the way that was something that got mentioned and then got paid off later, and this feels like them them playing around with that again, you know, to say, okay, we're going to create another hashtag, basically. Yeah, let's have more terms. I do love seeing Slip and Jimmy in action, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the most fun. Well, so do you think the show's kind of uh, telling us that we, we can't eat our cake and have it, too, by, by showing us the fun of that and then immediately following it up with that scene with Kim where... You know, she she goes from being kind of impressed at his ingenuity in spinning such a yarn to really concerned about what this says about his character and just his common sense that he's willing to fabricate evidence and, you know, jeopardize his legal career and potentially jeopardize everything they have together, everything he's earned. Right. Did that seem to you like a quick come down from the kind of elation of, of, of just how clever Jimmy was in that moment and how funny <laughs> the explanation was? Oh, definitely. He got in trouble with his girlfriend. And so, yeah, you, you don't want to do that. But I, I feel like that sets us up going forward for sure that, you know, if you have a, a good angel on your left shoulder and a bad angel on your right shoulder, you know, she's, she's going to be the good angel saying, don't do stupid stuff that's going to get you in trouble. And on the other shoulder is his his spite for for Chuck. You know that's his his bad angel that that keeps him wanting to do these things. Which was so well illustrated the way that we see the effect that Chuck has on Jimmy. The when he, when he shows up to the firm and he just takes all the air out of uh, out of Jimmy's sails for at least for a moment, and then Jimmy's bolstered by by Kim, who uh, you know puts her hand on his thigh. Oh, that was sweet. Or at least he gets his wits back about him. Yeah. I don't know if Chuck is self-aware enough to understand just how tenuous maybe his position is in a lot of ways, you know, in that he does kind of seem like a dark figure. Like I, 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 I turned to my wife and said that he feels like a villain. It almost feels like Darth Vader's coming when they, mm-hmm. when like they bring out the, 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 the Tupperware tote for everyone to put their phones and fobs in it. And you just yeah. get this sense of Chuck's coming. And of course, we're seeing it because we know what it means to Jimmy. 
And you can imagine Chuck kind of stewing at the fact that Jimmy seems competent and well-liked. Right. I just don't know how petty Chuck really is. After that scene, you know, they have the encounter in the hallway. And Jimmy says to Chuck, why are you here? And Chuck says, to bear witness. Yeah. What did you make of that? Because my thought was, okay, I guess that's their way of saying, uh, I've got my eye on you, you know, uh, uh, but something about it was subtle enough that I wasn't sure that that was exactly the right take. Um. <clears throat> My thought about bearing witness was it was a double-edged comment from Chuck, meaning I came to see the wonderful works of of James McGill that I've been hearing so right, much about. Right, but sarcastically. But also saying, I came to see the truth of what you're doing. I came to see what you're up to. And then they, you know, they make a point out of it. It's almost two on the nose, but the, the next second, I mean, they're actually, their conversation ends, Chuck and Jimmy's conversation ends when Jimmy's cell phone rings and Chuck backs up as though he's been, you know, shocked or he's something. He's going to get zapped, yeah. Jimmy takes the call and it's from Mike. And it's like at the moment when Jimmy is feeling the most vulnerable, perhaps, and the most spiteful towards Chuck, here's Mike saying, it's Ermintrout. Are you still morally flexible? If so, I might have a job for you. It's still Jimmy's choice in that moment to say, right. uh, uh, where and when. At this point, Chuck is right that Jimmy is already up to his old tricks. Yeah, yeah. Chuck really pushes him towards the slip inside. Because <laughs> in this episode, we already saw a little bit more with Chuck, and we we're seeing, you know, we, we got that little window into his world at the very beginning with him playing the song on the piano and getting frustrated with himself for messing up every time and getting so mad at himself for messing up. And obviously, you know, you know, even though most everyone's going to practice with a metronome. I think we're meant to see that metronome as representative of Chuck's particular sort of obsession with order and the right way of doing things. And he's so not going to let himself off the hook when he messes up, even though he's playing beautifully, you know. Uh, and then that after thinking about Jimmy's rise or Jimmy kind of uh, having some success, he can't even play a note, you know. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck's an interesting guy. I mean, it's like he's a he's a f-ed up interesting guy. Yeah, my thought about the metronome was that it's just tick tocking, tick tocking, and it's 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 helping us feel his pressure to go back to work. You know, uh, just that he's he's sitting there in his house playing music, but feeling like uh, time is ticking away, and I I want to be back in the world. And then, uh, uh, and then he tells Howard, you know, I'm thinking about coming back next week, and he tells him that you know before even he knows about Jimmy or anything. So he's not just he he isn't just going back to bear witness. He's going back to to be part of society again if he can. I mean, it's a character who you really don't know which way he's going to go. And I would say the same thing at this point about Howard. Howard seems like a decent guy, and I like what the show did with his character last year by making Howard seem like a tool and then revealing that he was kind of a tool under orders, so to speak. Um, right. And that he was really almost protecting Chuck's interests, and clearly Howard does look up to Chuck a lot. So there's something going on there. I still don't know how... like. I read that as Howard wanted to be the one to go, because clearly it's been Ernesto who's been uh, uh, delivering Chuck's food and stuff all this time. Mm-hmm. He's, he's kind of taken on the Jimmy role. And right. uh, that sounds delicious, doesn't it? A Jimmy roll? <laughs> I wouldn't mind taking on a Jimmy roll right now. It's like a big fat yeast roll. <laughs> kind of hungry. But anyway, at first I thought, why is Howard kind of rattling Chuck's cage a little bit? But I really think that Howard just felt that he needed to be the one to tell Chuck about Jimmy, that Jimmy took the job at Davis in Maine. Is that, is that how you read that? Or did you think there was something else? Was Howard trying to trying to get Chuck uh, to, like, was he, was he poking the bear a little bit when it comes to 
Chuck and Jimmy, or was it just this is a necessary thing? I don't want to, but I someone has to tell Chuck, and it ought to be me. Yeah, yeah. That to me, that's all I thought it was was that he was he was the one to come that day because he he needed to tell Chuck something because he he got down to business as soon as they got done with small talk and said, "Oh, I'll tell you some news or whatever." Right. Tried to be casual about it, but yeah, that was the reason he was there was to let him know that thing that he knew would would get under his skin. Maybe I've seen too many like Twilight Zones or whatever, but it feels a little too good to be true over there at Davison, Maine. Well, maybe I don't think so. I don't think we're supposed to be thinking that. But yeah, I could see, I could see definitely be on the lookout for it because in this show, anything can happen, so you're on the lookout for anything. I don't think this is a setup, but you know Chuck could come in and spoil things for him there. Maybe that's the trajectory. You just never know what it's going to be. I think we can see a way that Jimmy's going to kind of get himself into trouble. My feeling is this episode put a bow on the situation with Price. Like, I don't anticipate seeing him again. That was a caper that resolved. And that the... I know. But the fabricating of the videotape, uh, that they can come back to that if they want and say, oh, Jimmy gets in, in big trouble for having fabricated this evidence. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm like that now is because every time I think, oh, that's a caper that resolved, it turns out to be something that comes back. To me, the slapback of that caper was Kim's reaction at the end when she found out. Like, that scene is so well done because it starts off with this kind of celebratory tone and it cuts to a close-up of the pie and you can see both of their forks just digging in. And then after she finds out that he fabricated evidence mm -hmm. and Jimmy's trying to play it casual... And he goes for the pie. You see a shot, and it's just his one fork kind of, I don't know, kind of a, a lonely fork kind of picking at it. Whereas before, there's these two forks lustily going at this pie. Yeah. I just thought it was a great little note of like how in that one little moment, there's a there's there's now a barrier to their happiness together. Uh -huh. He's very much saying, you won't hear about it. Not, I won't do it. Right. No, he is. My thought is that she's saying... I cannot hear about this sort of thing ever again. That's that's for some reason she's resigned to the fact that he's going to be doing this stuff. She she doesn't say I mean maybe she said for a minute but now she's given up already on saying, you know, you can't get involved in crazy extracurricular activities and so she's kind of like like the the wife who's being cheated on who's who's resigned and says just never tell me, just never let me know anything about it. And I'll go on knowing in the back of my mind that you've got mistresses, but I'm I'm going to bury it and not think about it, and I can survive that way. You know, she's saying, just don't say anything about this, and that way I won't get sucked in, and I won't have to worry about you or do anything if I can just try to not think about it. Uh, and he's saying you won't, but I'm thinking that it's inevitable uh, that she is going to get pulled into his shenanigans one way or another. Either she has to ends up having to help him on some shady case or get him out of a legal jam, you know, if he gets uh, uh, jammed up for something, you know, uh, or into physical danger, or she gets put in physical danger, you know, it, I, I just think that that's inevitable and that they're not going to be, you know, she can't go on forever as a character and, and not see that side of his life again. If she's in his corner, you feel like Jimmy feels strong. You know, and we saw that in this yeah. episode with her touching his thigh. And I thought the really cute 
stuff like the the footsie and her moving the the you know the seating arrangement around so that she could be next to Jimmy. My first thought was right. she was worried about Jimmy offending or being in the wrong spot or something. And then when I immediately saw, oh, okay, definitely she wanted to sit next to her boyfriend. Right. You know, right. that's just that's very sweet. And then they go out and yeah. we have a scene of them sharing a smoke, which was how we first kind of saw them talk in the first episode of the show, I believe. And then at the end of the episode, it's already off. I already knew throughout the episode that it wasn't great because there's just something something wrong. Like when, well, you already know from him catching her up that they don't talk every day when they're in the parking lot. And she says, we got to get a smoker. And he kind of pokes fun at her and says, yeah, we got to get a smoker. Uh, you know, if he was... If he was completely thrilled and, and completely on board, or if she was completely thrilled and completely on board, he would have grinned and given her a big hug or said, yeah, this will be great. We're, you know, we're going to have this place or something, you know, but he doesn't. He kind of jabs at her. We got to get a smoker. And she doesn't quite have what to say. She's a little bit at a loss. So there's some disconnect there. And then also, I think a great symbol of their disconnect is that her uh, gift cup, world's greatest second greatest lawyer does not fit in his new car and that they are not a perfect fit. It's almost like a conflict because she she would fit perfectly into the world of Jimmy, the good lawyer with the nice car. Right. I didn't read Jimmy's reaction to her saying we quite the same way you did. I think you can see throughout that moment where he's describing the new digs and everything else that Jimmy's not quite comfortable with what's going on. And I think what yeah. really we're seeing there is that Kim is more excited for the status he's achieved and where he's arrived. And maybe there's professional jealousy, but she's also happy for him as someone she cares about. I think what we're seeing is that even before Chuck shows up, even before Jimmy makes a mistake or starts slipping again, um, uh, that he's just not quite comfortable there. Like, you know, he's even when you see the scene of him working in his office and he seems to be doing a good job and he goes and talks to the boss and it seems like it's a good experience, you don't see him like relaxing and smiling and going, yep, here I am. The closest yeah. he comes to that is being excited about his new car. Uh, so I, I think that what you're what you're seeing as sort of him having misgivings about like what their future is or what their status is, I see that more as just Jimmy knowing, wait, I, I seem to have it all right now and I'm not happy. Less, less so specifically related to Kim and more so specifically related to he's aware of his nature and he's aware that he's not being himself, you know? Maybe it is, but it it it's so ambiguous. But it to is. me, there was something about the way that he said, "Yeah, we got to do that." That seemed like he was saying, "I can't rely on you." It's like it, like you're Kim. You're telling me we're a thing, but I don't trust that we are for some reason. And so my thought was, uh, this is the story that I pictured. Seven years ago, he proposed to her, and she said no. And that's where we are now, is that, oh, they still have a thing. They get together sometimes. They're halfway boyfriend and girlfriend once in a while. Uh, and this is another instance, but he knows that she doesn't completely love him, you know? And so that's – and and that went along with, with my reading of the line of, uh, oh, we got to get a smoker. Yeah, we'll have to do that. <laughs> and then her being kind of like, well, you got me. I, I don't have anything I can say back to that. 
I'm kind of hoping there's still fun to be had with those characters together. Yeah. But after that conversation, if we know that Jimmy is doing whatever he's going to be doing, surely at this point in the show, he's he's now, you know, he's doing it. He's going to have to be keeping secrets from her. At what point will that just take all the fun out of their scenes together? You know what I mean? When That he's being, he's no longer being open with her. I guess it just points to how many ways this show could go. You don't really know what kind of story you're watching sometimes right. and, and how much they're going to throw some of these characters that aren't connected to the crime world in Jimmy's life. Like how much are they going to become collateral damage uh, or caught in the crossfire or how much are they just going to represent the life that he loses and leaves behind. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the criminal side of things, uh, we didn't, haven't talked much about it, but I loved the little chain of cause and effect and consequences between Price and Mike and Nacho in this episode and how it all relates to this this off-screen threat of Tuco. But it's really about uh, Mike motivating Nacho to help him help Price, which in turn helps Mike, <laughs> you know? It's like, I loved, I loved how tangled that was, that like, um, it wasn't just the matter of getting Price his his baseball cards. It was also getting the cough, the cops off of his back, which, so it's like, yeah. it, it, that involved Mike going and telling Price, look, let me handle it, involved Mike going to visit Nacho at uh, the upholstery shop run by Nacho's father, where Nacho works. But what I liked about that, for one thing, there was just this beautiful shot of Nacho working in the back of the upholstery shop. Like, there was this, it was just this wide shot, and he's like a silhouette, you know, hunched over a sewing machine. It was just a gorgeous shot. Mm -hmm. It was like Mike was popping in and doing that veiled threat, just showing up at your family business. There is this veiled threat. Yeah. Mike's pretty ballsy to go and do that to a guy like Nacho, that, you know, and, and, I just felt like Mike came prepared, as he always does, with what he needed to say to convince the other guy. Yeah, of course. The way Mike talks to Price is like Price is uh, an idiot who needs coaching. The way Mike talks to Nacho is with a little bit more mutual respect. Like, he feels that he can appeal to Nacho's pragmatic side. And uh, like we said last year, Nacho's not Tuco. He's not an unreasonable character. Uh, I thought the actor that plays Nacho, Michael Mando, I loved seeing his... Uh, his stink eye that he was shooting Mike, every time his dad would turn his head for a second, Nacho would look at Mike and gesture like, mm -hmm. get out of here, what are you doing? You know, I just thought it was a great little moment. Like it was a, it was neat to see those two characters interact uh, for, a, a, you know, in a lengthy scene, but also to see that Mike really did sort of have a point. And it's something again that we knew from last year and we thought it was important, but we didn't know when it was going to come into play, which is that everything we've seen Nacho do, he's doing on the side. Right. Uh, he's doing it on the sly from his his boss, who's Tuco. So, like, Nacho has something to be afraid of. Well, the main thing that concerned me was that Nacho's uh, dad is so nice, and he says, don't try to upsell him, you know, even when he's speaking in Spanish. No, I love that, that he's like an honorable guy. I love that. But it's like so over-the-top nice that it makes me worry really bad that Nacho's family is going to get killed by Tuco or something. I wanted to see that as a nice little vignette from this world that shows you I mean, that just surprises you a little bit with what Nacho does. Like, he doesn't just, it doesn't seem like right. he's just using that as a front. He's not a full-time criminal. Well, it's, it, yeah, and he's actually working at the, he's actually working at his dad's shop, you know, right. or at the family shop. Um, so, yeah, I, but I love that don't try to upsell him. It would be so easy to show his dad being like the guy who's like, hey, this guy's an idiot, let's gouge him or something. Right. But in the world of this show, it was nice to say, no, here's a nice man who's being honest, and he seems like a successful businessman to boot. Yeah. The one thing that I thought was maybe a leap, but, you know, for the purposes of, of an episode of this show, we have to believe that Mike would help Price instead of just, I mean, I guess the only other option you would have is kill a guy, right? 
Yeah, I don't know, or just give up on it, but and 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 risk, yeah, yourself getting uh, involved or spoken about to the police. So it was a little leap for him to to say, oh, when he hears about the sentimental value of the cards, he sa- he says, I'll get him back. It was like a humanizing moment for Price, and it was a moment that calls back Mike's kind of sad, tragic backstory when Price says some of those cards belong to my dad, not only is he on the verge of tears at at that moment, he's getting emotional, you know? Yeah. But the background part was Mike's thing with fathers and sons. And you know the guy saying my dad made Mike think for a minute about his son. Right. Father-son stuff, or just parent-child stuff is Mike's Achilles heel, you know? Yeah, I think in the moment I was like, oh, would he really do that? But then, yeah, when you think of all that and look at it that way, it does seem like that was his weakness. Well, on that plot line, there was one of my favorite things to note about this show is whenever they kind of have fun with a certain gag. And obviously in this episode, I would say that Price's Hummer was the source of many, many funny descriptions. Um, Nacho said that it looked like a school bus for six-year-old pimps. <laughs> uh, Mike referred to it at one point as a midlife crisis. Uh-huh. And he also said this blinding neon sign of a car that says drug dealer. <laughs> uh-huh. Like if we never see that car again, which we probably won't, they got they got uh, a a lot of uh, fuel. God, and anything I say is going to sound like a pun. They got a lot of mileage out of it, uh-huh. or they got they got, they got a lot of fuel for jokes out of it. I don't know. What would you say? It was a good vessel for humor. They got some fuzzy dice on their <laughs> seat covers. They really wrote those jokes and hung some truck nuts on them. I think we've about hung some truck nuts on this episode. Yeah, I guess so. This is not related to this show, actually, but this is just related to a commercial that is airing during the, um, uh, the AMC is airing during, during Better Call Saul. I guess it's a miniseries that's coming out on AMC soon. It's called The Night Manager. Hmm, I must have fast-forwarded through that. With Tom Hiddleston and uh, Hugh Laurie. Anyway, I guess it's the character that uh, Hugh Laurie plays in the show. His name is Richard Roper. And it's like they're they're using oh. that name on the commercial the way that, you know, like a character name. Like there's a scene where this it says, ever meet Richard Roper? Roper's a world-class arms dealer, you know, in the preview. But isn't Richard Roper the name uh-huh. of the guy that partnered with Roger Ebert after uh, Gene Siskel died? <laughs> I don't know. Is that right? I can picture that guy's face, but I can't. I can't remember his name at all. I think his name is Richard Roper. I just every time it's it's just funny to me. Oh, I just googled it. Richard Roper, R O E P E R, is a film critic for the Chicago Sun Times. So, and yep, and co-hosted. Yep, that's the guy you're thinking of. So, I guess that's bad news for Richard Roper that he's not enough of a name that the writers of this would say, well, we can't call him. <laughs> right. Whatever. Like if, you know, like if you had a character named Anthony Hopkins or something like that, you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't, you know, you would change it. You'd avoid it. Or it, am I just not aware that this is a novel about Richard Roper, the film critic, <laughs> that got turned into a miniseries? I think it's like based on a John le Carre spy novel. So maybe there's more more to Richard Roper than previously met the eye. But <laughs> right. I guess I have another thought, but it's also about a commercial that aired during the show. So we're really getting off the show. But, but Walking <laughs> Dead now spoils the previous night's episode in the commercials that air like the next night. You know, Walking Dead came on Sunday night. And I don't love Walking Dead, but I watch it sort of casually. And, you know, I'm curious whenever there's a big twist or a big change, like what, what are they yeah, doing? Right. And they now air a commercial. I noticed it last week, but this week it was even more so because it was more of a, a spoiler. They air a commercial on Monday night that is like the announcer with like block print coming up that basically says like, Timmy got killed, uh, Sarah and Pete 
had sex or whatever. Like it actually comes up so that even if you're fast forwarding through the commercials on your DVR, you may see the words come up. You know, it's it's yeah. a very strange way to market the show. I mean, have we just gotten to that point in our culture where the the spoiler window has shrunk to that extent? I think they're cleverly like trying to make you watch it on the night. You know, they're trying to they're trying to put out spoilers and make it seem accidental. You know, but they put out the spoilers quick enough because there's some benefit in it to them if you watch it on the night or in the next 18 hours instead of two weeks later or 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 a year later. So they're like, okay, we can't put out a spoiler before the show. We can put one out 24 hours later, and people will get used to that, and they'll say, gosh darn it, I have to watch this as soon as I can. You might be right. like, And that might be a, a scheme that actually works for them in some arcane way that I just am not able to picture because for me i'm not like super sensitive about spoilers i don't Seems like, like we were seeing that stuff for last man on earth last year we were getting really perturbed with the uh, facebook posts like from the uh from fox you know they'd put up a commercial the next day or something uh on facebook that would let you know ah i needed to watch that episode last night if i didn't want to have this spoiled right now yeah like you just met so and so now what's going to happen and it's like I remember you were watching that show when it aired, and you would tell me, like, you would text me saying, watch Last Man on Earth, because something big happened, you know. Um, right. What was funny about that show was almost, it almost seemed that something big happened every episode for a, for a while there, you know. It yeah. was an eventful show. It's actually coming back soon, but... Okay, well, I don't want to get too far off, but those are uh, uh, other things, other, you know, anytime I... I noticed something while I'm watching the show. I feel like that's fair game. So the fact that I, those were commercials that I saw during the the show that we were supposed to be talking about that that's uh, that's admissible, right? Sure, sure. Hey, if you've been hearing any strange noises uh, from my end, it's raining on my air conditioner and it's making little bit bop bap noises and uh, and a low hiss and. Uh, uh, hopefully the listeners aren't bothered. I don't know if if you can hear it at all. But anyway, well, now that you mention it, I can kind of hear. I kind of hear that in the background, but it has not been. It hasn't been bothering me up till now. So I would say don't sweat it. But okay, I mean, I don't think there's much we can do about it. Well, you know, Chris, just like Mr. Wormold created his uh, squat cobbler videos, he's a crybaby squat. to titillate the senses. We create this podcast to titillate people's senses, and I. I hope people that are listening understand how important it is that if they really like what we do and they enjoy this show, that they need to hop on to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. Because I found today, Chris, that if you put in a search for Better Call Saul on iTunes um, and then you limit it to podcasts, Uh we do show up, but we're the 53rd item (laughs) that shows up. I want to see us jump up to maybe 50, Mm. 47, Mm. something like that. Kind of low. That would be nice. Yeah. Then we'd be in the big time. No one really knows how the iTunes algorithm works, but I do think you show up higher on the charts if you get ratings and reviews. So even if you're not listening to this podcast through iTunes, give us a star rating okay. and a review uh, on on that app. Ah. You can also approach us online at Saul underscore searching on Twitter, and you can email the show at searching at gmail.com. We would love to hear from some people. Um, any thoughts or questions that we get through social media, we will probably talk about on the show. So if you have a question or a comment, uh, we would love to share it with the rest of the listeners. Other than that, Chris, any, uh, any notes you want to make before we go? No, no, I am ready to eat my lunch. All right, before we say what we always say, I want to just throw this out. Let's watch for the name Rebecca Blois, because that was the name written 
on the sheet music that Chuck was playing at mm. the beginning. And it seemed like there was sort of a hero shot that made sure we saw the name Rebecca Bois, B-O-I-S. Yeah. So listeners, I don't know if that's significant or if we're supposed to know who yeah. that is. I don't think so. But it seemed like an odd detail to have it show up and not be something. So huh. it's just my little parting shot, Chris. I might do this every time now. Just give you a little uh, head scratcher. One last note. Okay. One last tiny minute note to make you realize that we have definitely uh, ended this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we are completely out of big ideas and important points. Right. Well, hot, hot talk. talk.